0: I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Defense Commissary Agency, DECA? How has the pandemic impacted its operation? And how is the Defense Commissary Agency changing the way it does business? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Bill Moore, Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Defense Commissary Agency. Bill, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. So, you know, for our audience, Bill, I'd like to get some context. Would you tell us more about the history and mission of the Defense Commissary Agency? How has it evolved since its inception?
2: Yeah, actually, the Defense Commissary Agency started in October of 1991, so we're actually in our 30th year. But the commissary system goes really all the way back to the revolutionary times of our country. And uh, in 1825, it was institutionalized for officers only. And then in 1867, just after the Civil War, it became uh, open to all enlisted and officers. So that's what we call now the modern era of the commissaries. Started in 1867, and, and then we combined all the services commissaries together in 1991 with the inception of the Defense Commissary Agency.
0: Oh, wow. How is it organized, uh, Bill? You know, it, it, what is the footprint? But the operation, how, would you, how do you fund your operations? I, I, when I was doing the research for this, I was surprised. You're global. You're a global we are agency. Global, right. So could you give us a sense of the organization? How do you fund yourself? And and what's your geographical footprint?
2: Yeah, so we are in uh, just about every state. We're in 46 of 50 states, but we're in 13 countries outside the U.S. as well. So uh, global footprint, 236 stores at this point. Uh, much smaller than we were in 1991, we were over 400 stores. So uh, just the downsizing of the Defense Department has has. Made us smaller, but I think uh, equally effective. Uh, it's our intent to reach every eligible patron, but eligibility, t- in my mind at least, is uh, part of that. Is their geographic ability to reach a commissary? So, so many of our eligible patrons just aren't anywhere near a commissary. But, uh, but we have a significantly robust budget. We we get just over a billion dollars a year from the from the hill from Congress as an appropriation. And, uh, and then we uh, turned that into really a retail sales uh, department that really doesn't deliver like a normal grocery store would. It's very small margins in grocery operations, so we need that subsidy, so to speak, to enable us to deliver the benefit, which is by law 23.7% cheaper than local market basket averages. And we actually have an independent contractor that goes out and studies the local market baskets at every single store location uh, over the course of each year. And and we have to report that out to Congress quarterly. In FY20, we delivered a 25% savings uh, based on this local market basket average. So so in my mind, for every dollar uh, one of our patrons spends inside the commissary,
0: they save about a quarter, uh, which is huge. Just a follow-up, because I'm thinking – you know, when I think of watching old MASH episodes, is this the equivalent to a PX, or are they different? They
2: they are different. I consider the commissaries, and I, and I had to deal with this when I first came on board. I'm I'm in my fifth month now. I came on board in late August, published a 100-day assessment uh, back in December. Uh, but one of the big questions was, uh, are the commissaries a benefit or a business? We are a benefit, and really our patrons consider us one of their most vital benefits behind health care and their pay. Uh, and they love the commissaries. So we are a benefit, but in order to deliver it efficiently, we have to operate like a business. The exchanges are a little bit different. They are a service really of convenience for our basically the same patrons, mm-hmm. uh, and they're able to offer their services at, at usually lower prices than you can get outside the gate, but they have no uh, no statutory requirement or responsibility there. And the good news is whatever profits they make in the exchanges – is brought back to the services in what's called the Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, MWR, funds. So the exchanges contribute back to the services with their profits. We really don't make a profit in the commissaries, but we're delivering that cheaper groceries and lowering their grocery bill. And it's a part of their pay system, but not part of their
0: paycheck. Just a good benefit. I mean, so you mentioned five months in, in your role. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your duties and responsibilities as the director and CEO of, of it, it's called a uh, deca, right?
2: Deca is yeah.
0: <laughs> Basically,
2: I am responsible to deliver that benefit by law to our all eligible patrons, and uh, so the twenty three point seven is kind of like job one. Everywhere I go, I talk to the importance of delivering the benefit. Uh, but as part of that, I'm f- I'm fiscally responsible for our budget. I'm responsible for our auditability, for the fact that uh, we treat our customers well you know, the whole dignity and respect uh, requirement and how we treat our each other and our customers. Nearly 14,000 employees. So I'm personally accountable uh, in, in my head to each one of the, our employees. You know, I like to lift them up uh, rather than being kind of the guy on the top looking down. And uh, and I see my role as enabling our employees to deliver the benefits. So that's that's kind of how I see it. Uh, it's sort of a servant leader type, Perspective from where I was raised as a leader, uh, and and you know have a great staff that supports me in in doing that. We have a fairly robust headquarters, I think six or seven hundred people altogether, and uh, and we do the buying from that level. So we work with industry. I view part of my responsibility is dealing with industry, and I, I think we'll talk oh, to that yes. a little bit later. And then coming back to the stores, making sure our stores are really upholding our standards in terms of cleanliness, modernization. And uh, and right product selection, which is a big deal with our with our customers.
0: I know it's only been five months, as you said, and you kind of are in the mix of a a situation that's been unusual for everyone, being in the pandemic and still that's still involved in it too, and still dealing with it. But but Bill, if you could add, if you could think about it, what has surprised you most since taking on your role? Um,
2: wow, that's a great question. Uh, first and foremost is the um, is the workforce I was cautioned when I was initially hired that the workforce might be kind of in a status quo mode and and it wasn't like that at all I mean from from my deputy director down everyone is all in on the the value of the benefit we are all believers you, you know I, I like to talk purposeful work we have a great purpose in delivering this benefit and every time I see a family walking into a commissary you know I feel proud that I'm involved in that. Uh, I was a military brat, Army brat, specifically. My dad was a retired uh, and disabled vet uh, who fought in Korea and Vietnam as a, as a non commissioned officer with the Army. And so I got—and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so I was dragged to the commissary, me and my sister, throughout my childhood. So I've seen it from that end, and, uh, and then in my Army job before I came into this position— I was uh working inside the Pentagon as part of the Department of the Army Staff and one of my responsibilities was representing my boss on the Defense Commissary Agency board of directors. So uh so I got to kind of see it from the top and from the bottom. And uh and so that was really helpful in in how we you know work to deliver the benefit. But the workforce, you know, they are incredible. They are knowledgeable. It's unbelievable the tenure of our workforce. Uh, most of our work, uh, even at the headquarters level, started out as a bagger or a checkout clerk as a GS2 or 3, and have worked their way up through the commissary agency. So a lot of depth there and a lot of commitment on uh, on doing the things we need to do to transform the agency and, and provide and deliver on the benefit. Let me add one other aspect of what surprised me most in taking the job. I mean, the workforce has been awesome, but, uh, but the other aspect that surprised me was the, um, our young service members not enjoying the benefit of the commissary. There's a perception, for one, that it's just not cool. Uh, we have a lot of retirees and we have a lot of senior military inside the commissary. And, uh, and so they, they fear going there. So they don't enjoy their benefit like they should. And the second aspect, this generation, like it or not, convenience matters to this generation. Their time is so important to them. They will choose time over value. As, as I see it. And uh, so they'll trade that quarter off per dollar of savings if it saves them time by going elsewhere or shopping outside the gate or avoiding those senior leaders. And, uh, and so one of the things we've got to do is find a way to make it cool and convenient for young service members, maybe even delivery as an example to the barracks uh, as a way to get them to enjoy their benefit. They They've earned that right to save, and I want to deliver on it. So that was just another surprising aspect to me, and, and we've got to work work on that.
0: How has the pandemic impacted the Defense Commissary Agency's operations? I will ask its director and CEO, Bill Moore, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bill Moore, Director and Chief Executive Officer at the Defense Commissary Agency. So, uh, Bill, would you outline for us the strategic vision and key priorities for realizing that vision for the Defense Commissary Agency? What is it?
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, I mentioned earlier I did the 100-day assessment, and I had to do that a little bit blind in this COVID environment. I wasn't able to visit as many commissaries uh, as I would have liked, and I didn't get overseas like I would have liked since we have over 25% of our stores are in our overseas locations as well as some distribution centers. So with that in mind, uh, I held an offsite with our team after I had the opportunity to do my own assessment and shared with the leadership team back in early December, hey, this is what I'm seeing from a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats perspective, what we call a SWOT assessment. And uh, and when I did that, the team gave me with their depth, they gave me some really great points to uh, add or delete out of my personal assessment. And from that, we um, we I published that hundred day assessment. And and from that, during that offsite, we built a vision. And uh, this vision, uh, because I wasn't comfortable with the old vision that it was about six or seven years old, and it just needed to be freshened up. And it and to me, it didn't meet. What I would define as a purpose of a vision, I want to to set an aim point you know what are we looking for? I met with many stakeholders after I was publicly announced back in July, from industry to retirees, just plain shoppers, to stakeholders within the building, service members themselves uh, and the board of directors and and they all seem to have a different perspective on what deca should be so so I knew it was important to define that vision so and we came up with it I have since socialized it with the stakeholders and and achieved, I think, their buy-in, but we'll see on that. But I published the vision in in December, uh, and it went public just a few weeks ago. But uh, let me recite it to you, if you don't mind. To be the grocery provider of choice for our eligible patrons, delivering a vital benefit exclusively for our military community and their families. You know, it's almost like a private club, so to speak, in that you've got to earn your right to shop there. Mm -hmm. And you've got to offer your service to the nation to be able to, to enjoy this benefit. So I wanted to capture that, the exclusive aspect. But I also want to be the grocery store of choice. And, and with that comes a whole host of priorities. You know, you asked about that. But first and foremost, it has to be a safe place for them to shop. And I think we demonstrated with COVID that we can be safer than your normal grocery store. And it's so it's safe. Second of all, it's got to have what you want to buy. I ended up, from that vision, creating six lines of effort, strategic lines of effort that we are attacking now. The number one and where we get the most criticism from our customers is the supply chain. Okay. There are many ways to measure this, but in the end, it's all about are the products they desire to buy on the shelf or not. Uh, COVID has been very difficult on the supply chain for everybody. And uh, and for us, we went from about a 2 or 3% out of stock to really ranging somewhere around ten percent. And often it was it was product that really needed to be on the shelf. So we're we're working hard on that. But that number one line of effort is getting improving our supply chain. The US supply chain for me as an as an old army logistician supply chain is sort of my comfort zone. But frankly, the US supply chain is convoluted. For DECA. We don't have a lot of control of some of the links inside that supply chain. I'm not used to that as an Army logistician, and I'd like to fix that. Um, not sure how we'll be able to fix it as well as I'd like, but that's okay. Uh, we we will improve it uh, either way, and hopefully we'll have more control and or at least accountability for every link in the supply chain. So that was our first priority behind safety. The second one is is getting e-commerce across the finish line. Uh, i, I was bragging back in November and December that I had doubled the number of stores we offer what we call click-to-go or curbside delivery or service, excuse me. Um, and we went from five stores to 10 stores. Now we're up to 11. But 11, you know, and it sounds great until I finished that that point. It's 11 now of 236. So it's nowhere near where it needs to be. So we're, uh, we're doing what I call breaking glass there a bit. We are looking at really interesting commercial options to where we can leap ahead like every other retailer really has in in the covid environment the grocery industry is now at about 11% of sales being through e-commerce back in may i was reading an article written back in may of 2020 when we were already in covid where that was the target for 2025 of where the grocery industry would be so we are we are accelerating at a dramatic Speed in terms of how our patrons are buying their groceries, uh, so we've got to we've got to deliver on that. That's a convenience and it's a safety factor. People don't want to go come in the store, and uh, so we've, we're working that as part of the e-commerce. And I've added delivery in there as well. I would like to at least be able to deliver on base if possible. And uh, you know, like the grocery stores do today, uh, you know, pick your. Competitor Kroger or Walmart. I mean, you can pick your delivery means. You you know you want Uber Eats or, if I could, I would love to be able to hire veterans-owned businesses to do that. But uh, but I w- I do believe it'll be a third-party thing between the the <laughs> customer themselves and the delivery mode that they end up with. And uh, and I'm hoping there's opportunity there for veterans to have a business and meet the need of our patrons. So we're working that pretty hard under this e-commerce line of effort. Third priority is uh, what I call patron focus. I mean, we've got to deliver premier customer service. I mean, you you know, the customer is king. And and I felt like we're kind of there, but kind of not. And I just want to make sure we've set clear standards of how we treat our customers and what we do. And it comes back to, you know, that line of effort one and what products we offer. So we're working that pretty hard in that third line of effort. The fourth is demand creation. One of the reasons I was hired is that the commissary agency has had declining revenue really going all the way back to 2012. So we're in like eight years of declining revenue from a high of $6 billion in uh, 2012 to $4.5 billion in 2019. And we matched that. And COVID actually contributed. The panic buying of March and April kind of kept us above. So we didn't decline in 2020. We were better by a half a percent. A little bit behind the grocery industry overall, because there was much growth in the grocery industry in, in 2020. but uh, So we might have still lost a little share, but we were on the plus side. Uh, but that said, we've got to find a better way to deliver on uh, on demand creation and deliver on our revenue. Like I said, every dollar we get in sales is a quarter that I feel we've delivered in benefit. So, if we increase sales, we increase our benefit delivery, and uh, and back to our vision. So, so that's another important priority. The final two lines of effort really facilities modernization. I just want to make sure our facilities are clean and modern, and uh, and really it enabled. And then the last is our as our workforce. I mean, I want to take care of our people. I want to give them the skill sets they desire and need in order to operate in this reform, in this transformed commissary agency going to the future. So I want to make sure we are ahead of the ball in, uh, in delivering
0: good training and engaging with our employees. So that that's our priorities. That's wonderful. You know, you, in your response, you kind of highlighted a number of, of trends and drivers within the industry you find yourself in. And so I'd like to sort of elaborate. Are there, if you could, specific internal drivers within the DOD, if you will, or in the services? Or, and or external trends that sort of informed and shaped your vision?
2: Yeah, the uh, the external trends, I mean, the grocery industry yeah. and the entire retail industry is just changing so quickly, you know, and, and we've got to be on that bandwagon. I, I think I'll talk to it a little bit later, but our IT, oh, yes. we're in the midst of this transformation of our IT. We're going to an enterprise business system called EBS, and uh and we cannot modernize our commissaries without having a modern it system that from the supply chain and how we buy product to the point of sale itself and how we deliver the benefit to the customer. so um so that's a big push that then enables things like e-commerce, which is where the industry's headed, and delivery. You know, when I did that offsite, I talked to the old Wayne Gretzky, you know, I don't skate where the puck is. I skate to where the puck's going. And uh, and I talked to our team about we've got to go where the puck is going, and uh, and so they're kind of all in, and that's chasing those external trends, and uh, and with that comes innovation as well on product. It's it's strange in certain categories we are like first to market, and, and we get a company's new innovative product on the shelf very quickly. In other categories we don't, and uh, and I want to make sure we stay ahead of that, and and can deliver on those new products that. That may have a nationwide marketing going on, and then our customers are like, hey, where is this new product? And I want us to get ahead of that as well in terms of external trends. Internally, our customer base is evolving. Our, you know, uh, like it or not, but our retirees are getting older. Some of them are passing away. So, you know, looking at our potential customers, we rely very heavily on our retirees. They they love their benefit. The young service members that I mentioned earlier. Uh, if they even understand it, yeah. they opt out, so to speak. And, uh, and I want to, first of all, educate the young service members and their families on just how great a benefit it is and then find a way that delivers it in a way that they're comfortable with in terms of convenience uh, while we satisfy those retirees and their family members. And, uh, and in 2020, we added Congress was great. They opened the door of the commissaries to disabled vets. So if you have any service-related disability, whether you're retired or not, you can now shop at the commissary. That, frankly, added over 3 million potential customers to our 12 million customers we already have that are potential customers, geography aside. But they're having tough times getting access, especially in a COVID environment. They don't know how to get on base. Some of my dad's old buddies, non-retirees, but they fought in Vietnam and are disabled. They're like... Bill, I don't even know how how I would go about going on post. I haven't been on post in 30 years. You know, so we've got to find a way to reach that group and uh, and open the door for them and welcome them in. And uh, so I think that'll help grow, kind of grow our customer base and we deliver the benefit now that they are eligible to to
0: enjoy. But then again, they've got to make the choice. So we, we've been talking about it briefly, but I want to get head on right into it and the pandemic. Yeah. How has... Um, the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your operations. And more importantly, maybe you can tell us how specifically, both from an operational standpoint at the bricks and mortar, but anything else you've done because of this situation?
2: Yeah, it's been tough on everyone, you know, uh, really tough on what I call our frontline commissary workers. Uh, Early on, some commissaries were even shut down very early on because of the risks involved. And, uh, and this was before my time, but DOD decided that commissary operations were a mission-critical function at the installation level, and it was all about creating a safe place for our, our patrons to be able to shop during the pandemic. So we were essentially told, you've got to keep the doors open, um, which meant a lot of our employees had to put themselves at some risk um, we went through a phase where we didn't want to put, well, I mean, we're still in it, but we didn't want to put our high risk employees cause we, like I mentioned earlier, we got a lot of experience and these high risk employees that either have a medical issue or, uh, an age issue, according to the CDC guidelines, we, uh, we frankly sent them home on weather and safety leave in order to protect them. And we were given the authority to hire temporary workers, uh, to come in and backfill, those uh, employees that were high risk, but that allowed us to keep our doors open. Cost us a lot. I mean, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 million to where we've had to spend uh, additional dollars just to keep our doors open. Uh, That's okay. The CARES Act helped us out. They got us a little over $30 million, uh, but beyond that, we're kind of eating the cost uh, and we're working our way through that. I mean, it's just part of the business operation. But, um, but we did that. We, we installed plexiglass. We uh, ensure masks are being worn inside the stores. I mean, we are doing everything we can to ensure safe operation. Whenever we have a positive, we do deep cleaning every night across the commissaries, and, um, which does mitigate the effects of a positive. Uh, frankly, the number of positives within our employees is very low. And it's remained low, you know. If I can knock on wood, I would. Uh, but every day, it's it's you know a little scary. And and uh, and where you know we had back in November, December, we had a steep incline in cases, and it was just all the people shopping. That's a big selling period for all of retail, including grocery. And we had a spike in cases. That's come down a little bit, but uh, you know, every day I pray it'll stay down. And uh, and we've got great, I think, procedures in place that whenever we do have a positive case we can make sure there's no risk to our customers or other employees as we continue to deliver on the benefit so it's um it's affected our operations significantly i'd like love to get us over the finish line i didn't mention supply chain but a lot of products okay. we went from about a 90% fill rate on what we ordered to get into stores down to below 50% there for a while because of many of our suppliers couldn't keep their manufacturing plants opened. And uh, so there was all, and there was competing demands outside the gate, just not enough product to go around. I have met with all of our leading suppliers and sort of pleaded our case to get us what I called more than our, quote, fair share, so we could deliver on the benefit. And and they've been very open to that. We're starting to see some improvements. We're in the probably 67 to 70% fill rate range now, still not where it needs to be. But we're working our way through it. And frankly, a lot of our suppliers are kind of getting used to how to deal with a COVID environment and, uh, and still deliver on product because we can't make the sale if we don't have the product in hand. You know, so.
0: you know, Bill, I'd like to jump ahead to something you mentioned earlier, and that's the Enterprise Business Solution Initiative. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about it? And how does it seek to modernize your entire resale retail business?
2: You know, it is a great system. Probably long overdue, we initiated this uh, way before my time. But back in 2016, we started deploying this new system. We're getting there. We have four increments of delivery. The first increment one is our merchandising suite, which is really how we deal with our suppliers. Uh, we're essentially fully deployed on that at this point. Increment two is how we replenish our stores. So how do we see ourselves at the store level You know, is, is the product... On the shelf or not, and uh, and that's we're at about seventy percent deployed there, but we need to get that over the finish line. What I consider probably the more important increment is increment three, and that's our point of sale system. Getting that to the enterprise level to where we can then do e-commerce very easily, and uh, and we can do things like self-checkout a lot easier, and and just things our, our customers expect. We're about forty percent there, uh, you know, but not soon enough probably about a year or so out i'd like to accelerate that and i've got the team looking hard at how we can accelerate across the board the fourth increment is really how we handle our distribution uh, especially overseas how we manage our warehouses and um we're just now we back in october we did our first warehouse with the this increment four and we expect to see that over the next year to be fully implemented across our distribution center so we're getting there um Part of getting there is getting EBS to the cloud. Right now, we are on-prem, so to speak. So we own our own saver, servers, and that sounds great, um, but it's not so great. I mean, I, I in my in my past job working inside the Army, I was responsible for the Army's logistics IT, and led our efforts to migrate to the cloud because there were so many benefits there. I, I became a believer in the cloud during that. Time frame uh it creates much easier ways for us to modernize our it to protect it in terms of a cyber that which was a bit counterintuitive to me yeah. but it, it is safer on the cloud and uh and it just allows for us to host it in a cheaper but more effective way so uh so I'm a big cloud advocate and and part of getting EBS accelerated is going to be getting to the cloud and doing other aspects that we've hadn't really, uh, investigated very well before I got on board. Uh, you know, I want to pick my words carefully. Sure. We looked at it, we decided we had a policy obstacle. We couldn't get it over the finish line, but I'm talking about online payment. We have got, uh, you know, and I've told the department of defense leaders that I work for, we cannot be a 21st century retailer without online payment. It's just not feasible. And so, uh, we're getting great support from the Pentagon on getting that over the finish line. So I think we'll get there on online payment. And if we get there with cloud and we get there with online payment, then we can really accelerate getting EBS out and doing things like e-commerce in a different, more effective way.
0: So what's your timetable, if it's a fair question, around the cloud? I would
2: hope to have our most important aspects to the cloud in the next three or four months. Uh, Got a couple of obstacles. We, uh, like it or not, we're part of the Department of Defense Information Network, what is commonly referred to as the DoDIN. Uh, we are probably the only retail—don't quote me on that—but I think we're the only retail commercial entity that is actually has to operate within all these constraints of cybersecurity inside the DoD information network, and we have an obligation to protect our patrons and uh, and their privacy information. So, it's a unique challenge, but we're doing I think pretty well. So. The leap to the cloud requires some approvals um, because we're on the doting, and we're working our way through that now. So I'm I'm predicting success, uh, but I'm not quite there yet. So there's a few assumptions built in there, and uh, I hope to get us over to finish line in the next few months.
0: What is DECA doing to transform the way it does business? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
3: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
0: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bill Moore, Director and Chief Executive Officer at the Defense Commissary Agency. Now, you are are off the dot mill environment, correct? We are
2: actually still in the dot mill. Yeah. You're not in the dot com environment. It, it, right, and okay. it makes it so unique when you're dealing with credit cards and debit cards and coupons and and uh, and people's personal bank accounts, you know, as you make sure they've got money in their debit account. Yeah, I mean, it's... So yeah, we 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 have to operate in the .dot mill, but we've got to have seamless crossover to the .dot com world yeah. and uh, so, and it's like I said it's created some pretty unique challenges for us in the IT arena but uh, but I'm really proud of the way the staff has found ways to maneuver in that space and, and meet the needs of our patrons say so, you know they want if they want to use their debit card I want to Make sure they can.
0: Will you ever move from the dot mill environment? Is that is that something that's in the horizon on the horizon? You
2: know, I, I, I would never say never, but it'll be it'll be difficult because of uh, having to validate the eligibility of each customer. We use their common access card. Uh, we only use very limited aspects because there's a lot of fear with some of our patrons that they have to get their card read in, but it does verify their el- eligibility, and so. It's kind of the easiest way for us to do that. And as long as we've got to do that, which I think we'll always have to, we'll have to communicate with the dot mill, if not stay on it. So, uh, you know, that that creates challenges. Frankly, we may talk about this later and how we partner with the exchanges. They're all on the dot com side of things. And frankly, I'm a little jealous of them because (laughs) it simplifies their lives a little better. So if we look at consolidating some of our IT over time, which is a possibility, we may end up or the department may have to make the decision that we're either going to be all in or more likely all out. And then we would migrate to their approach. But um, but that's years down road, downstream.
0: Well, I was wondering, we were talking about a technology, the IT infrastructure modernization. What are your plans around either leveraging or planning to leverage technologies that Maybe aren't so emerging right now that are that are here like AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, or blockchain. So what are you doing in this area?
2: Yeah, I, I tell you, uh, and I should have mentioned this earlier. EBS does give us big data, okay. and so now we kind of have it. I mean, we're still in the midst of deploying this the system, but we're getting more and more good big data. And uh, and one of the things I have to make sure we have is good big data because. You can have big data, but if it's not good, you can make big, bad decisions with big data. But uh, And that's where I envision AI and machine learning. It's going to help us out a lot, not only in, in ensuring our big data is good uh, and accurate data, but it's but also allows big data analytics. I mean, we've, we've got to learn how to leverage our big data so we can better deliver on what our patrons need. So I see a great future as we take on AI and start to study, because it's really too much for a human to do. Uh, we have an analytics group at, at DECA, but it is really tough to to get into the weeds of big data without some help from an AI perspective. So I envision us to leverage that as we move forward, and that'll help us choose better products and deliver uh, on, on our patrons' expectations in a much better way moving forward.
0: Besides big data, are you using analytics right now to understand your customer base? We are, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, and, you know, like the what the retirees desire advice, what a young service member. We have this uh, Your Everyday Savings Program, and we're targeting that to young service members. You know, I think about back when I was a kid and my dad was like a a staff sergeant. We had very little buying power. So the commissary benefit was much more, the value of the benefit was much greater. I'm trying to figure out how, how I quantify that in some respect. But years later, when he was a retired NCO, and with the kids are grown, and he had a lot more buying power. He really didn't need to shop anymore, but he still did yeah. uh, because he still liked saving the money. But with young service members in this Your Everyday Savings program, it allows us to target the products they need and that they're buying. You know, pick diapers as an easy example. Uh, we can offer additional savings there. We use things like big data analytics that help us figure out, you know, what are the products they, they need and desire, and then how do we price it appropriately to where it maximizes the value of their benefit.
0: You mentioned earlier, Bill, the the collaboration with the exchanges. Um, how is it working? What more needs to be done? Yeah, you
2: know, there was this huge push to consolidate uh, the commissaries with the three exchanges. You know, and there are three very different exchanges. You have AFI's, the Army Air Force uh, exchange system. So Army and Air Force already had combined. You had NEXCOM, the Navy exchange. AFI's run by Tom Shule. Uh, NEXCOM run by Rear, Rear Admiral retired Rob Bianchi, uh, who do had it as the uh, commissary director there for a couple of years. And then finally, uh, Cindy Whitman-Lacy is the, she is the CEO of the Marine Corps exchange. You know, a little bit smaller, but, uh, but still... Very important. And, and those commissary, I mean, those exchanges are very different and they w- work with us. There was a study done by the DOD chief management officer that concluded there was a lot of promise in consolidating all four entities. Mm-hmm. This was before my time, but there was a lot of criticism of that study that the assumptions weren't very valid anyway, GAO took a hard look at it and didn't like the conclusions reached. And and frankly, in this year's NDAA, this year's uh, authorization bill, Congress asked us to redo the study, which is now underway. And uh, we've got to deliver that sometime in the next few months. That re-looks at consolidation. If I was a betting man, I don't think we will consolidate because it's just too darn expensive to do it. And the ROI is like 50 years. I mean, it's it will take forever to recover what it would what it would cost. I mean, just our IT system as an example, we're about three or four hundred million dollars deep in a, in our modernization of our IT, and I don't want to have to start over in some larger IT effort. But that said, there is still, I think, great low hanging fruit in how we partner with the exchanges. Rob, Tom, Cindy, and I talk at least weekly, about opportunities of how we could partner. We're working together now in this consolidation study to make sure we meet the needs of the Hill in, uh, in answering that question once and for all. But we also meet and discuss opportunities of partnership. We've created a joint buying alliance where if we're buying the same product, we might be able to strike a better deal if we if we join forces and uh, just, you know, from a volume buying perspective. And that's working pretty well. Uh, we may end up Right now, we're piloting beer and wine sales inside the commissaries. Every grocery chain gets a lot of sales out of beer and wine. And as a convenience to our patrons, I'd like to be able to offer it. We, we have it piloted in 12 stores. But we're doing that as a partnership with the exchanges. So Basically, we're buying product from the exchanges, and then we offer it inside the commissary to where if you want a red wine with that steak tonight— You know what I don't want to do is have our customers say, "Well, I can't get the wine with the steak at the commissary. I'll I'll go to Kroger." You know, and I I want to make sure they they can deliver. You know, we can deliver the benefit, and they can save money, and
0: maybe get their wine as a convenience, or you know, or beer with a burger. You're mentioning commodities and things that you're selling, but what what about the commissary store brands? How are they doing?
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm surprised we're this deep without talking about them. They are doing extremely well. I mean, we are growing with our commissary store brands every day. We're at at, uh, about a thousand products now. Mm -hmm. What's unique about our commissary store brands is we are able to deliver the benefit that I mentioned earlier and achieve some level of margin or profit uh, with those commissary store brands. We have two that are um, near and dear to our heart where they are only offered at the commissary, and that's Freedom's Choice, which is our food, uh, like water, and, you know, we have hundreds of products in the Freedom's Choice arena. And then the non-food brand is called Homebase. And uh, and both of those brands are doing very well. On top of that, we have six other brands that we offer as commissary store brands. They're just not unique to the commissary. They are offered at other stores. But where it's not cost-effective for us to do it all on our own, we're able to deliver the product to our consumers without having to invest as much in it. And uh, it's just a more efficient way to deliver. But uh, but we do achieve some margin. And frankly, our appropriation now has been reduced to where we have to achieve some level of margin in order to finance the operations and deliver the benefits. So the commissary store brands are very near and dear to, to our hearts on that. And, and frankly, there are private label brands in every single grocery store. And uh, we're at like 5%, a 1,000 of maybe 20,000 items in a commissary. A store like Kroger is well over 20% and growing. And uh, in a store like Aldi or one of those, Alito, they're up around 50% because it's just a better deal. And um, so the consumers expect it to have that option. They make the choice. I like to use my Jif peanut butter example. I am a Jif guy. I'm not going to buy a private label peanut butter. You know, I'm not going to do Skippy. You got to have Jif. You know I mean? Brand loyalty matters. But, uh, but when it comes to bottled water. I mean, I feel kind of patriotic buying the uh, Freedom's Choice order. You know, it's like yeah, Freedom's right. Choice. And the commissary agency is making a, a few dollars. that It's lowering what yeah. the taxpayer has to pay for us to operate. So there's, I mean, it's really win-win. Um, I don't feel comfortable at this point that we've optimized our strategy. Okay. Our strategy has been based in the past on achieving margin and number of products we offer. I think it's a more complicated uh, strategy that we need to put in place that considers revenue and margin and number of product lines. If, if a product's not selling it, I want it off the shelf. Uh, so it's not important to me that it has to be a thousand or more. It's important to me that we have the right products there that, that our consumers want. You know, if we got up to 10%, you know, two or 3,000 product lines, that would be great, but only if they're all selling, you know, so we're relooking at strategy and, uh, and you know, trying to take a disciplined approach to the future of commissary store brands, but uh much to the chagrin of some of our suppliers, it's here to stay because it's it's something the customer expects they want that option you know they'll make the choice of whether or not they you know buy the private label item or they buy the name brand and and the suppliers just have to realize that's that's competition they've got to overcome you know uh what I don't want to do is is not issue is not offer store brands just because we can. I mean I want to make sure it's what our patrons desire. And if they if they've got that brand loyalty like I do with Jeff Peanut
0: Butter, so be it. What does the future hold for the Defense Commissary Agency, DACA? I will ask its director and CEO Bill Moore when our conversation continues on the business of
3: government hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yanyan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
0: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bill Moore, Director and Chief Executive Officer at the Defense Commissary Agency. Well, I want to talk about collaboration and partnerships first. And and so, Bill, how are you leveraging, and you've alluded to the exchanges, but how are you leveraging partnership and collaboration with the private sector, if you are at all, and I I believe you are, to improve your operations? One of the
2: criticisms, and again, I need to be careful on this, but uh, DECA had kind of gotten away from collaborating with industry partners. Um, It was a very conservative approach, and there was some worry that, um, you you know, that it wasn't as ethical as it should be. And uh, and frankly, you know, we are linked to our suppliers. I mean, we are are dependent on them. And in my opinion, we've got to collaborate with them. They, you know, they can help us properly market product and uh, and reach our consumers in ways that we can't just because of the rules and policies we have to live by. So I've made an express effort to reach out. I've met, we call them listening sessions, but uh, since November, I've met with all of our top suppliers, uh, the top 25 or so, and let them tell me you know, what's working, what isn't. They have given me a lot to think about in our team, a lot to think about. And we're, and we're making headway. And uh, they're helping us on e-commerce, you know how you offer a product on a digital shelf. Mm-hmm. This is a science that's evolving by the day. It's very different than how you offer a product on a physical shelf. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're helping us get that right. They're also helping us plan properly. So uh, I mentioned innovative products and trying to be you know, first to shelf well we can't be first to shelf if we don't know what's coming so we've got to collaborate with our you know with our suppliers and if they they're going to offer a new flavor of Gatorade you know we've got to make the choice of whether or not we want to offer it to our patrons and uh so that part of collaboration is very important we have a lot of brokers that represent suppliers that's who I'm meeting with now I'm doing the same type of listening sessions as we speak with our brokers they have a very they have a little bit different perspective because they earn their profit a little bit differently than our suppliers do. So we're working our way through that and and hearing them out. Uh, But we're learning a lot from our brokers and uh, and from our distributors. I mentioned that weird supply chain we have in the U.S. Well, part of that is distributors that don't work for DECA. They actually work for our suppliers. And uh, so, you know, I always say follow the money. So we pay the suppliers, the suppliers pay the distributors, and the distributors bring our products to us. And it's not a very efficient system because there's a lack of transparency between us, the suppliers, and the distributors. And the and the brokers are in there somewhere. So I'm trying to clean all that up based on input from the distributors. You know, we don't want items sitting in their warehouse that we're not going to order. And they don't want it either. And it's a lose-lose. So I'm also uh, working very closely. We have four major distributors inside the U.S. And I'm sitting down with each of them as well and figuring out how can we do this better moving forward? You know, how do we reinvent our supply chain? So uh, in terms of collaboration, you know, suppliers, brokers, distributors, three different entities that we've got to be in sync with as we move forward, while we protect ourselves, you know, from the policies and statute that allows for competition and all that. And we are, and we're doing that, I think, eyes wide open and doing it well.
0: You know, turning to the future, um, what does the future operations look like for DECA? You know, what I'm getting out of here is smaller stores, more locations, fully automated stores, um, on-base coffee, food trucks kind of thing.
2: Yeah, things I would love to deliver on. I mean, back to the vision. Yeah. You know, I want to be the grocery store of choice for every eligible patron. Well, those eligible patrons, they want these things. I mean, they weren't – for one, we're, we're at 236 locations. I'm not sure how we got where we are. But that's where we are. It was actually over 420 commissaries when DECA was formed in 1991. Now, it was a bigger Department of Defense, but I'm not sure how smart those decisions were made. There's really no dollars available to grow the number of commissaries. So I'm like, so how do we deliver the benefit to our patrons when we've got limited locations? We have limited hours. I mean, we've got a lot of commissaries that aren't open seven days a week. I mean, what grocery store isn't open seven days a week? And I'm like, how do we get our stores open seven days a week to meet the needs of our patrons? And uh, I'd love to find better ways to doing that, but but that adds to the cost of the operation and uh, not going to get any more taxpayer dollars, I don't think. So we're trying to figure all that out. I don't expect us to be able to have more locations. So I got to figure out how do we deliver at the locations we have, how do we get to that young service member? Is there ways to do that through e-commerce and delivery? Are we offering the right products for them? They're very health conscious. You know, we just rolled out this green thumb program where we have dietitian-approved items on the shelf, and you and it's very easy to see it with the green thumb. And uh, and we're offering like meals that have already been prepared, and the re- and you you know your shopping list is ready for you. And and that's just other ways I see us being able to deliver uh, moving into the future. Beer and wine, I mentioned that. You know, I'm not sure I'll get that over the finish line, but I'd like to offer that. I'd like to offer meals that are ready for them to just pick up, take home, and put in the oven, like you see at Kroger or Whole Foods. I think that convenience factor for our younger service members is huge. They have more buying power than my dad did as a staff sergeant in the 60s. And we've got to, you know, keep that in mind as we move forward. So, how we deliver on the benefit for the evolving needs of our patrons is going to be really important moving forward. Our ability to partner with other vendors, mm-hmm. we are constrained from doing that now with uh, just policy, and we don't want to be in competition with the exchanges. They they do that, and uh, and you know, so when you see a Popeyes yeah. or a Burger King on an installation. That's in partnership with the exchanges. And so that's a pretty clear line uh, that I'm not allowed to cross. going to keep the collaboration. Exactly. Uh, but I would love to find ways to partner with them and maybe at least deliver some of those conveniences, maybe under our roof, but as a partnership with the exchanges. And, you know, you can get that Starbucks coffee if you want it while you're grocery shopping, because that's what you see at a Whole Foods or Kroger. And uh, so I don't, you know, the future, I think both the policymakers in the building and the uh, lawmakers on the Hill are both open to these ideas while we don't create unhealthy competition with the exchanges and uh, as we try to deliver on what our consumers desire. So, so I do see a bright future there, Uh, you know, low hanging fruit, not quite as high on the priority list as
0: some of those other things I outlined earlier, but but areas where I do see promise. It has been a wonderful conversation, but I was wondering, um, what are the three t- three things you want our listeners to take away about the defense uh, commissary agency?
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's a uh, a great question. I mean, n- number one, it goes back to the vision. You, you know, I mentioned that benefit. I mean, if you can save a quarter on every dollar you spend in groceries, so I just buy for me and a couple of teenage boys, but that's $200 a week. That's $50 in my pocket by shopping at the commissary. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And when when I see one of our eligible patrons not shopping the commissary, it really leaves me scratching my head. So the first thing is that they have to understand the benefit. And uh, so we've got, I think, a bit of education we need to do. So um, I w- would want all of them understanding it's the benefit. And then they can make a conscious decision that, you know what, I'd rather pay an extra quarter for that gallon of milk. Per dollar. And uh, so we'll see. The second thing is that we are driven to offer the commissary benefit in a more convenient way. So we are going to get there on e-commerce, and and I think we'll get there on delivery as well. That Probably through a third party, but at least offer it. You know, you won't save a quarter on the dollar for delivery. So if you decide, you know, $5 is is what you're willing to pay to, to get your groceries delivered to your barracks store, so be it. You know, uh, my son actually wanted a sandwich one night, and it was just a two miles down the road. And he says, Dad, we can Grubhub this, and uh, it can be delivered right to the front door. He says, let's try it. It's so cool. Well, the $12 combo <laughs> that he wanted was $22. Yeah. By the time I paid for delivery and tipped the guy to drop it off, I was like, Dude, that was an extra ten bucks. It was just two miles down the road. That was thirty cents in fuel, and they were like, "Yeah, but Dad, we never had to leave the house." Yeah, that's how these kids think, you know. I said, "Well, I won't be calling them again. We've got to be able to deliver on those conveniences." And uh, and the third thing is is our workforce. You know, they've taken a beating over the years with um, with just the way the commissary agency has evolved, and you know, morale is getting better. But it's not as great as it could be, but um, but I think we are, you know, we have this great workforce. They are all in on delivering the benefit. Like I said, purposeful work—you couldn't find a better purpose. You know, I, I like to tell our workforce, "You serve those who serve." That's what we do, right. and I'm loving that. And and they, um, like I said, the morale is getting better every day. And I want our customers to understand that we're all in. And uh, you know, sometimes I feel like they may not think we are just reading comments because I, I read a lot of the comments we get. We've got to get better in how we, how we communicate on social media moving forward back to young service members. But, um, but the third, that third thing is that we have got this great workforce and, uh, and I, I love what they do every day and they love what they do every day. And I just would love our patrons to better understand that.
0: That's wonderful. One last question. What advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service?
2: Yeah, you know, I've only got 37-plus years in public service now, Uh, so (laughs) I'm still young at it. (laughs) I wish. It has been a great career for me, and I would encourage anyone who is thinking about it to give it a whirl. I made a choice at about the 10-year mark not to leave for industry. Probably, at least I was told, I left a lot of money on the table because we don't pay as well inside government, but you have such intrinsic reward in, uh, in serving those who serve, especially as a, what I was, a Department of Army civilian, and what I am now, a, a Department of Defense civilian. It is, it is just, you know, I go home pumped, I wake up in the morning pumped to go deliver the benefit, and, uh, and so, you know, the pay is not bad. The benefits are, are pretty darn good in terms of health care and retirement and all that, you know, you may not make quite as much as you'd make on industry, but you're going to sleep a lot better. And, uh, you know, you don't have to wait on, well, gosh, if we don't win this contract, I don't have a job tomorrow. You know, so there's a job security aspect to it. And then there's that higher purpose of delivering something. And uh, and I just have enjoyed every single minute of it. You know, my dad was my greatest coach up until he passed away, but he used to ask me every day, so what have you done for soldiers today? Because I was working for the Army. And uh, and uh, you know, I got he got me to a place where I would ask myself that question at the end of every day, and it would adjust what I did day to day. And so, it's a like I said, it's a great career in terms of reward. Uh, benefits are good, pay is pretty good, but um, but job security is is probably the third and final thing I would say. Keep that in
0: mind. Well, your passion, uh, Bill, comes out, and I want to thank you for coming in today. You made the drive up to be in our studio, which a lot of folks haven't been doing lately. So I really I really appreciate your time and your insight. But more importantly, Bill, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, see you at the commissary. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Bill Moore, Director and Chief Executive Officer at the Defense Commissary Agency. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.